Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series called Gift Exchange. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. I was a third-year student at Dallas Seminary. At the end of the fall semester, my theology professor showed us that clip right before Christmas break. And I've never seen The Lion King the same ever since. Uh, the reason why I like that movie so much in that clip is just because that even really the whole story of The Lion King is very reminiscent of the biblical story of redemption. You know, imagine a, uh, a baby who is born king. He is crowned king from the moment of his birth. Even the, the father above recognizes the birth of this king with the lights from the heavens shining down upon him. Imagine a usurper who knows the king very closely. In The Lion King, it's Uncle, Uncle Scar. He kills the father, he tries his best to kill the son. The son escapes, goes off into exile, comes back and returns to a kingdom that has been taken over with darkness, evil, drought, and destruction. When the king returns, he establishes peace and justice. He brings life back to the kingdom and does what everybody wants the king to do. Uh, The story of redemption is through and through something that grips our hearts when we see stories like this because it reflects the biblical story. The story of of a man who was made king. One thing that I would love to do if I had the opportunity, however, is I would love to exchange one thing about The Lion King. If I could go, go back and help Hollywood get it right, I would say you guys need to exchange the song at the beginning and put a song like we just sung about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, a king who came to die for us. This year at, at Christmas time, we've uh, engaged in about a, a four-part, three-part series that we're calling Gift Exchange, and, and we're looking at Isaiah 61. And talking about exchange, when we think about Christmas, typically we gear our hearts and think about the gift that was given to us, a gift that we receive through Christ. He is the gift of salvation. He's the gift of grace from the Father above to us who don't deserve it. However, in many ways, Christmas is not just about receiving a gift, there's somewhat of an exchange that takes place. And so we've talked about through Isaiah 61, exchanging our hurts for God's healing. The second that we trust Christ, the second that we come to have a relationship with the King, we can exchange our hurts for his healing, we can exchange our ashes and death for his beauty and for his life. Today we can exchange our faint spirits for garments of praise. At the core of the miracle of the incarnation is a great exchange. God exchanged the glory of the things that were created for the glory of the creator. God exchanges our sinfulness for his salvation. He exchanges our unrighteousness for his righteousness. We get his perfection and we give him our sin. He exchanged these things for us because in sin, we've all exchanged something for him. I want you to hold on to that. We'll come back at the very end of it. Right now, what I'd like to do is is just read the first three verses of Isaiah 61. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Uh, This is where we'll be for just a short time this evening. Isaiah 61, verse 1. 
It says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Just two things I wanna talk about this morning as, as we prepare and get our hearts ready for Christmas. Number one is what we give to God. We give lots of things to God. We can talk about these at Christmas time, but there's a specifics that this passage talk about. We give certain things to God. God gives certain things to us. And so I just wanna start with what we give to God. Isaiah is the prophet that ministered the longest in the history of Israel, probably about 50 years. And we can date Isaiah, we can contextualize this and understand the historical context just a little bit better when you go to the very, very beginning of Isaiah. In chapter one, verse one, he names four kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Ahaz. And we know from history that those four kings reigned from about 740 BC till 690. There's about a a 50 year period where Isaiah ministers to the people of Israel, to the southern tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. We don't know how long Isaiah prophesied after that. Scholars debate it, it's up for grabs, but for at least 50 years. And the historical context is important because certain things were happening during Isaiah's life. Just years before, in his own lifetime, he actually saw in 722 BC a king by the name of Sennacherib, who was over the Assyrian Empire. He rode into, at the time, Israel was divided into a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. Uh, Sennacherib and the Assyrians rode in with their army to the northern kingdom of Israel and they conquered them. They took them as exiles. They destroyed their cities, made those who survived their slaves. Isaiah witnessed all of that in his lifetime. Then about 100 years before it happened, he gives Israel some tough words and a tough prophecy. So you guys in the north just witnessed a pagan evil empire come against you and take your own people captive. God's about to do the same thing to the south. He's gonna do the same thing to Judah and Benjamin. You need to rend your hearts, you need to repent of your sins and come back to me. And sure enough, 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they come and they destroy not only the Assyrians in the north, but they take Judah and Benjamin captive as well. Here's why this is so important. We read this passage in Isaiah and it talks about captives, those who are bound, talks about the brokenhearted, and there's several mentions of those who are mourning. Isaiah 61 is written to a a nation and a group of people who are about to be utterly destroyed by a pagan army and by another nation that is bigger than them, stronger than them, and mightier than them. The Babylonians will literally ride into Jerusalem and into Israel and take their city and raise the temple to the ground. They will be exiles taken off into a land that is not their own and serve a people and a king that is not their own. But Isaiah tells them something uh, very different than just destruction and judgment 
Because after all, with God, judgment and condemnation is never the last word. When it comes to the God of the Bible, judgment and sinfulness cannot be the last word. Isaiah comes along and he actually gives these people hope. He gives them a reason to celebrate, something to look forward to. And he tells them, I'm gonna send you a king. Not like Ahaz, Hezekiah, Jotham, or Uzziah. This king will be from, sent from on high. This king will in fact be God. He will come to you in the form of a suffering servant. He will redeem you. He will establish his kingdom on the world and on the earth. And you can have hope and you can have joy because of this king. And there's, there's just a, there's a few quick applications that, yeah, this, this prophecy, this passage in Isaiah wasn't written directly to us, but it can certainly apply to us. Because as Christians, even though we're not homeless, this world is not our home. Even though we're not physically exiles living in a country that is not our own, we are exiles waiting for our true country, our true king, and our true citizenship that is yet to come to us in the future. There's a couple questions that this passage begs we ask at Christmas time. Are we living like a king, or are we looking for the king? Do you wish you were king, or do you worship the king? The message of Christmas is, is both more, more joyful and more comforting than anything else we have heard, but it is also more threatening than any other message. Because apart from the King Jesus, all of us have nothing but homelessness, exile, judgment, and condemnation. But because of what he has done for us, because of our broken hearts, our repentance, we can look forward and hope to the day when the true king will return. I want you to look at this passage in, in Isaiah 61, just a little bit more detail, especially verse three. Verse three talks about exchanging certain things with God. We exchange beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. We talked about that last Sunday. This week, we're gonna talk about a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. ESV says, we exchange with God a garment of praise for our faint spirits. Now, some of your translations will say something like a heavy spirit. Uh, New Living Translation says despair here instead of spirit. Faint is used as an adjective only seven times in the Old Testament. Most of the time it is used, it describes in Leviticus, the priests examining skin disease. If you had a rash on your body, you go back to the priest to find out if you can be purified and cleaned of that rash, he will determine if that rash has faded or fainted. By far, that's the most occurrence of the use of this term. First Samuel chapter three uses faint to describe the fainting eyesight of Eli. His eyesight was fading, perhaps. Isaiah 61 is the only place in all the Old Testament that uses faint as an adjective to describe the spirit. So we might say that the spirit is fading or the spirit is being weakened in this context with the people. In the Old Testament, it begs the question, what does the Spirit refer to? Over and over again in the Bible, what the Spirit depicts is our entire disposition in life. It's our attitudes, it's our mindset, it's actually our whole inner life in existence that we have. The Spirit is literally the power in your breath. The things that give you life and the thing that sustains life is the Spirit that you have within you. Sometimes spirit is used to describe motivations, desire, even your will, maybe even a mindset. 
Listen to Job chapter 7, verse 11. It says, Job spoke in the anguish of his spirit and the bitterness of his soul. When Job experienced his suffering, his whole spirit was in anguish and heavy inside of him. Psalm 78 depicts Israel as a rebellious and stubborn people that this, their spirit was unfaithful to God. But it's the Greek form of this word spirit that gives us the most insight into this passage. We can look at how the Greek translates the Old Testament and gives us a little deeper understanding. In the New Testament, a faint spirit is one that is physically exhausted. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? They were hungry and they were growing tired. Literally, it says there that their spirits were faint in that context. Galatians 6, 9. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow a faint spirit in doing good for others. In Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told a parable to those to indicate that they should pray and not lose heart. It's the same word for losing your spirit. It's very important when it comes to Isaiah. There's something more than just a, a weak and a faded heart that's going on in this context. Isaiah is actually describing a lifestyle. He's depicting two types of people in the world that will ever exist. There are those who are full of life in the Spirit of God. And everybody else is depicted as having a, a faint spirit. A faint spirit is at the core of all sin, actually. Because ever since Genesis 3, when man first sinned against God, we have been doing everything in our own power to earn a right standing before him. We have been doing everything in our ability, in ourselves, to convince ourselves that we are strong enough that we don't need to be saved. And so what do we do? We get good jobs, we pursue good careers, we build our retirement accounts. Everything we do to show the world and everybody else that we're strong. We can handle life, we can go through suffering unlike other people. After all, we have all this wisdom and knowledge that we've pursued. We don't really need a savior because we're not that sinful in the first place. We don't need strength because we're not that tired. We're not faint of spirit. To be faint of spirit in Isaiah 61 is, is a person who is trying endlessly, over and over again, learning new ways to earn a right standing before God on your own power, in your own autonomy, in your own independence. Isaiah is a prophecy that comes to those who are tired, who have grown weary of living a good life, expecting something good to come out of it on our own power. Isaiah says that we can exchange a, a faint spirit because at the end of the day, all of our good works, all of the things that we do on our own ability are tiresome. They are heavy upon our hearts and upon our shoulders. And there is no way apart from God that we can earn a right standing on our own abilities and in our own strength. Instead, what Isaiah says, is we can exchange all those things to God and he will give us a garment of praise. Here's what we give to God. We give to God all of our own efforts in a self-salvation project that will never end for our own good. We give to God all the things that we do 
to convince ourselves that we are God. We give to God the, the throne of our hearts, and he gives us salvation instead. Here's what, here's what God gives to us. What we give to God is a tired, faded, faint heart and a weary spirit. But what God gives to us is something completely different. Every year at, at Christmas time, our family loves to uh, watch movies. You guys know the movie that almost always comes out at Christmas time, right? Last few years, it's been Star Wars. Years before that, when I was in my prime, it was Lord of the Rings. Every Lord of the Rings came out. What we really like to watch is, is are there any James Bond fans out here? I love, I love James Bond. I love Jason Bourne a little bit more than James Bond, but I love James Bond, and he makes for a, a greater illustration here this morning. What I love about watching a James Bond movie is at some point in the movie, they spend a lot of money, time, and dedication toward huge action scenes. Every James, it wouldn't be a James Bond movie if things weren't exploding, guns weren't shooting, and there was like a car chase or something extremely exciting that's putting you on the edge of your seat as you watch it. In every single scene when this happens, James Bond is right in the thicket of it. He gets dirty, his clothing gets torn and tattered, usually he gets a scar on his face and he's gonna have that scar until the duration of the movie is over. But one of the things that I just love about Every James Bond movie, I don't, I don't think that I've seen one that doesn't have this. At some point in time in the movie, James Bond is going to go meet his nemesis, and he looks at him face to face, and he's always wearing, at that time, this like perfectly tailored, super expensive $1,000 suit, right? And he puts it on, and he knows he looks good. He literally changes all of his dirty, dingy, destroyed clothes, and he puts on something that is clean and costly and classy as he meets his nemesis. This is uh, the clothing changing is something that we see right here in Isaiah 61. Just like we put on new clothes for a wedding, we might buy a new outfit for a celebration, there's a new outfit, there's a new garment that's been given to us in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 tells us that God exchanges our faint spirits for garments of praise. And you might be thinking, oh God, thanks for the new clothes. I really appreciate that, right? But the word talks about clothing different than the world talks about clothing. I just wanna point out a few things. In the Bible, clothing depicts a quality, maybe even a power. Job 29, verse 14. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Uh, justice and righteousness are symbolized here by the clothing that somebody wears. Sometimes salvation is described with clothing. If you have your Bibles, look down at verse 10 in Isaiah 61. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Sometimes in the Bible, clothing is used to transcend what is physical and earthly. Clothing actually depicts a, a deeper spiritual meaning and significance. All of us are probably somewhat familiar with Ephesians chapter six and the armor of God. This, are, this is a metaphorical aspect of clothing that is our protection against Satan and against the evil one. The Apostle Paul will depict the new life in Christ, 
like changing our clothes on a daily basis. We put off that which is old, and we put on that which is new. Our identity in Christ, our significance, it's the truth of the gospel. Every morning when you wake up and you put your pants on, one leg at a time and a shirt on, you can go to the truth that as believers, you have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He has covered your sin, and he has given you truth and life instead of death. Isaiah 61 mentions a very specific garment. It talks about a garment of praise, and it specifically describes at least three things when it talks about this outfit. We actually read about them in just in the weeks prior. We have a crown or a turban or a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. We are given a garment for our body in Isaiah 61, and we are given oil, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning. These three items together in the Old Testament are items that describe the priests. The priest wore a robe, a one-piece robe beneath everything else. He put a turban, a headpiece on his head, it's called an ephod, and it is inscribed with the words, holy to the Lord. It's connected to a breastpiece that has the 12 diadems on it that, that symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, the Urim and the Thummim. Everything about this passage is describing priestly clothing. Exodus 28, the garments of the priests are described as being for glory and for beauty. It was the high priest specifically who wore a priestly robe, an ephod, a crown over his head, and oil was poured over his head to be anointed as the high priest to serve in Israel. Moreover, uh, Leviticus 21 says that the clothing of the priest should never be torn. It should never be ripped in any way because that would symbolize mourning, but the priest is the one who has direct communication with God. The priest is the one that communes for the people with the God on high. The priest goes before the presence of the Lord once a year with all of his holy garments and his attire to meet with and to celebrate his relationship with God, to confess his sins, and to make all things wrong with Israel right year after year through sacrifice. Isaiah 61 says that because of the Messiah, we can exchange faint, worn-out, dirty spirits for a garment of praise, a priestly garment, symbolizing worship before a holy God. The truth is that these garments are symbolic. But I don't want you to leave here thinking about clothing at Christmas time. All of you are probably gonna get a new shirt, or new pants. If you're anything like my family, we get new underwear and socks every year, all right? The, the necessities in life. Everybody needs them. I don't want you to think about garments. Instead, I want you to leave here thinking about glory. I want you to think about the glory of God at Christmas time. I'm gonna give you two, two things to consider this year at Christmas with your families as you leave from here. Number one, at Christmas, don't just exchange your garments. You must exchange glory to God. This is eternally significant for you. And if you've never understood what it means to exchange your own earthly, worn-out, faded glory for the perfect glory of God, I want you to listen really, really carefully. We've been talking about God's exchange for our salvation. But apart from Christ, all of us, the second that we came into this world, already made a deadly exchange for a divine one. And it talks about it. 
very clearly in Romans chapter 1. I just want to read a, a few verses here. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. The Apostle Paul writes, For although we all knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but we became futile in our thinking, and in our foolish hearts they were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we all became fools in sin. And listen to this. We exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. God created us to worship. Christmas is a worship issue because Christmas is a glory issue. We all have the truth being created in God's image, but in sin, we suppress that truth. Which means that Christmas is, again, it's not about exchanging gifts. To be more accurate, Christmas is about exchanging glory. Anytime that you and I look for our significance, our identity, or our meaning in life, in this world, in a person, or in a created thing, we exchange the glory of our creator for the glory of a created thing. That will never save us and never stop us from dying. Jesus comes and he brings glory of God that will save us and will give us life instead of eternal death. The miracle of Christmas is a divine exchange that overcomes our sinful one. Christmas asks us not simply to think about gifts but to think about glory. Not to think about just presence but to think about a person, Jesus Christ, who was the perfect glory of God. Not just to think about the wonder of the season, but to think about worship in our hearts. What are you holding on to in the world that has become for you an idol of worship? What are you looking to give to you what only God can give? Where is your deepest identity found in? Where is your meaning in life and your significance ultimately found in? Something created or in the creator who is blessed forever? Words the wise, those created things will never stand the weight of glory that you need for significance in life. Because at the end of the day, there is not enough money in the world that will save you from dying. There's not enough health care, there's not enough careers or jobs or success that you could ever pursue that will save off the day of your death. You need something that can handle the weightiness of the glory of God. And only God can do that through the person of Jesus in a personal relationship with him. Don't think about garments. Think about glory at Christmas time. Number two, exchange today what will be gone tomorrow. Make an exchange with God today for the things that will ultimately be gone tomorrow. In other words, exchange your temporary desires for those desires that are eternal and satisfying ultimately in Christ. C.S. Lewis is a, a great quote. It goes something like this. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that are promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. Lewis says that we are half-hearted creatures, like an ignorant child who go on making mud pies in a slum instead of turning for Christ. He says, we are all far too easily pleased. 
Christmas is not just a gift exchange. Christmas is an exchange of kingdoms. When we come to Christ at Christmas time, we exchange our earthly, worldly, temporary kingdoms for a kingdom that is eternal, strong, and enduring into eternity. Not only do we exchange kingdoms, but we actually exchange kings. We exchange ourselves on the throne of our hearts, and we put God there instead. He becomes the king. He was born king. That's why we celebrate his birth at Christmas time. And it's an exchange of our desires. We no longer find desires in this fleeting world, but we see our ultimate desires satisfied only in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as you go home and, and you celebrate with gifts and things in this world, at a deeper level, don't hold on to today what's going to be gone tomorrow. Hold on to what's going to be enduring, which is your relationship with Jesus more than any other thing. I'm going to pray, and actually uh, one of our elders this, this evening, Mark Shue, is going to come up, and he's going to help us as we sing a couple more songs and light some candles and um, just worship the Lord together as we close. All right, let me pray. Father in heaven, again, we just um, thank you and love you for the truth of Christmas. We thank you for the greatest gift of salvation that we could ever ask for in the person and work of Christ. We thank you that you've exchanged our sinful glory for a glory that is enduring, eternal, that will never fade away. Father, I, I pray that as, as we leave from this place, you would encourage our hearts you would help us to focus on the things that matter, the things of eternal significance and the weight of your glory. And thank you that we can find ultimate satisfaction in our relationship with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.